0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. Thanks for downloading or streaming or however you are accessing this. I'm an oceanographer and on this podcast I have uh, long format, relaxed conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. This week I talked with Dr. Rowan Whittle. Rowan is a paleontologist at the British Antarctic Survey and she's been there a while she works on uh, polar ecosystems and on what's called community structure, looking at uh, you know, the structure of what species are present in different ecosystems. Her uh, climate overlap comes from the fact that she looks at how things like community structure and how uh, life changes through a different uh, climate cycle, through uh, different warm periods and cold periods. So she understands a lot about how... Uh, how climate can shape ecosystems over long, uh, many tens of millions of years to hundreds of millions of years kind of timescales. My uh, ignorance is definitely revealed on this episode. I ask a lot of dumb questions um, because I'm just really not familiar with uh, her area at all. So, you know, I don't have the vocabulary that she has. But um, it was a really enjoyable chat and I really uh, appreciated her time and her Uh, willingness to come by and teach me a few things um you can can find Rowan she has a website at the British Antarctic Survey you can see her contact info and publications and things Uh, and I think this week I really want to just get to it as quickly as possible so I won't spend any time rambling here at the front Uh, I do that with some episodes but let's just skip that this time um yeah so uh, oh, I wanted to warn you, there is a kind of humming sound in the background. I tried to get rid of it as best I could. Uh, there was a computer that I had to leave on. I was running some analysis uh, and I could not shut that computer off. I needed it to continue doing that analysis. I was in a hurry to get ready for a meeting. Um, so you'll hear that a little bit in the background there. I hope it's not too distracting. Again, I tried to kind of eliminate it in post-processing, but you know, there's only so much of that that you can do. Yeah, okay, so thanks to Dr. Rowan Whittle for coming by and having a chat with me. I really appreciated it. Let's uh, go ahead and get right to it. Here we go. Yeah, so I think we, one of the things we started talking about that's kind of fun to talk about is like, so you're, like you do paleontology, mm-hmm. and that's pretty unique for bass, right? There's not really, are there other folks who do something similar here? Or uh, the yeah, there's um.
1: I mean, Jane Francis is a paleobotanist herself, right. um, so in the past she's done a lot of paleontology research, um, very well known in the field for paleobotany, and then there's also Alastair Crane who has worked for many years on molustin evolution, um, and then I look at the evolution of ecological change through time,
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I do, and I do a lot of work also with biologists trying to look at how modern ecosystems evolved through time.
0: So. I know very little about that, so feel free to like you can explain things at a super basic level okay. that's so outside of my in my area that I'm just not not as familiar with it. So how would you how would you do that? How would you try to get a handle on, like how an ecosystem or how you know, the this like the systems that you study change over such long timescales over like paleo timescales?
1: Well, we use lots of different methods, but also just like to put out here that in Antarctica, obviously, um, fossil outcrops aren't all over the place, like obviously a lot of the continent is covered in ice, I think it's like 0.05% of the continent is ice free. So we have snapshots in time across the continent, but we do actually have all time periods preserved in these snapshots from the Cambrian, like 550 million years ago, all the way to the present day. And um, these sites have collections of fossils, and I basically look at what what actual species in general live there, but also what their ecologies are. And that's kind of what my work's focused on these days is looking at um, the community composition and the different sort of ratios of predators and prey and things that are buried and things that live on the surface. Because one of the features of the modern day Antarctic ecosystem, especially the seafloor animals, um, is that it's got a really unique structure compared to the rest of the world. And obviously I'm looking back in time to see how this unique structure evolved. So there's a lot of um, animals that don't move around, sessile animals uh, attached to the seafloor in Antarctica at the present day, that aren't found in other places of the world at these shallow sort of depths, or actually um, they aren't found in such numbers. And that's because there are certain unique predators, seafloor predators, and this is the benthic ecosystem, that aren't found in Antarctica today. Things like predatory um, decapods, um, Although a lot of people are tracking modern um, decapods around um, South America and the um, polar region to see if they're in, starting to invade, because that will actually change the structure of the Antarctic ecosystem. Then you
0: get this from from fossils, like from digging up like impressions that animals have left, or like... so
1: the modern Antarctic stuff is obviously looked at by the biologists, okay. and yeah. then. Um, I've also worked with them to look at the fossil records of some of these groups, so things like predatory crabs, um, well predatory decapods, I've um, compiled the fossil record of all the decapod occurrences in the southern hemisphere through time to see when they disappeared from the ecosystem, and then um, that gives us an idea of when the ecology, the ecological structure evolved. And I also look at um, just each snapshot in time as as a as a unit, like as a community, and um, see what it's like then and compare that to the modern day. And something else that I do is looking at sort of big evolutionary events. So a couple of the ones that I've been looking at is um, the Marine Mesozoic Revolution, which happened um, in the Mesozoic era. era. Um, and that's a time period when um, certain predators evolved and lots of these stalked animals moved from shallow waters to deep waters. And it was supposed to have finished by the time the dinosaurs became extinct globally. But we've recently found out that um, that in the Southern Hemisphere, they hung on for another 30 million years. Hmm. We don't really know why at the moment. and That's going to be sort of the focus of a future study.
0: That's interesting. But all the continents were in different places then as well, right? Or is, um, is that not really...
1: So by 30 million years ago... They were more or less in similar positions, maybe a bit closer together on the bottom of the Earth. The Antarctic Antarctica, um, continent has been in the same place since about 250 million years ago.
0: So it was already pretty isolated at that yeah, point.
1: Yeah, um, but it was still attached to South America, Australia, um, and New Zealand until much more recently. But, um, the um, yeah, they separated. By about 40, 30, 40 million years ago, they were separated, um, but this is kind of tracing these um, particular group of crinals we've been looking at, sea lilies, that are stalked. These are these um, animals that should have been in deep water by the end of the Cretaceous. And um, we're kind of tracing them around the opening seaway between Antarctica and Australia, um, which is very shallow. And um, That's how we know they come from shallow water, because they've only just separated. It's a very shallow embayment around the bottom of Ant- uh, Australia. So, um, yeah, just tracing um, a group in time, um, which didn't fit in with the current evolutionary theory, has made us realize that there's something different in the Southern Hemisphere and we need to work out why. But also I've been looking at um, recovery from the big...
0: Sorry. Hang on, let's let's dig into that a little bit. Um, So you were saying that the, the, the Southern Hemisphere kind of continents were isolated enough that the evolutionary kind of trajectory could have been a bit different from the Northern... Hemispheric component,
1: right? Well, we we don't know. The this this evolutionary pattern basically doesn't doesn't hold for the southern hemisphere, um, but it has been um, sort of it's been given us a sort of global pattern. But a lot of um, paleontological patterns are based on northern hemisphere fossil records oh, yeah, because okay. there aren't that many people that study the southern hemisphere. Yeah. Um, Antarctica in particular doesn't have many paleontologists that work on it, and Australia doesn't have that many invertebrate paleontologists either. So it's just a very large area of the globe that hasn't been looked at in a lot of detail. And um, traditionally, um, a lot of paleontology has happened around North America and around, the, right. around Europe. Yeah. So a lot of the big patterns in evolution have been based on Northern Hemisphere fossil records. Okay. So that's and exciting.
0: So that means there's the possibility that maybe as more folks look into Antarctic and Southern Hemisphere, some of the Southern Hemisphere paleontology, that they could present some big challenges to some of the existing <laughs> theories.
1: Well, yes, I mean that's what we're finding. Yeah. Um, as we look at sort of big community, sh- sort of um, community scale um patterns, um, using southern hemisphere record, and this has um come about from collaborations we've got with um, Australian scientists and people from um other places working on different parts of the southern hemisphere. So we're not just Antarctic centric. Um, and yeah, it's showing that. That some of these big patterns just don't hold true for the whole world at the same time but it it kind of makes sense i mean like it's a large the the world is a large place (laughs) and um i mean things things evolve and change at different time periods and have different distributions i mean we don't know why this thing happened at a different time but it could be something simple as there's a predatory group in the northern hemisphere didn't live in the southern hemisphere or it could be that the whole theory needs revising um or it could just be that this one particular group that has been used as a test case for the timing of some of these, um, of, of the theory, um, just wasn't involved in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are the three major lines of testing that we want to look at. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm obviously not a biologist, so I'm not super familiar with, with it, but you need some of that separation for some of the, um, like speciation to occur don't you like you need some separation between so it makes between uh different ecosystems and different you know groups of animals for that evolution to, to occur so it kind of it does make sense yeah that there were, the timing could be different in different places and the trajectory that the evolution goes could be different in different places over different time scales
1: yeah i mean i mean speciation can happen in many different ways for many different reasons um but i think over large very large geographical areas i think it kind of seems sensible that things wouldn't be the same all over the place, all over the world. Yeah. Um, but I mean, speciation can happen, as I said, for different, different reasons. I mean, sometimes it's competition in a small area that causes things to evolve or it's, Mm -hmm. um, formation of barriers between things that separate species. I mean, there are not many different, different ways it can happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. So we'll, um, so that's part of what, what you've been working on is, um, Looking at the fossil record, looking at some of these sudden evolutionary changes, um, and trying to understand them and put them in context. Some of them aren't you know. necessarily
1: sudden. Some, okay. some of them yeah. are happening over very long timescales, like millions and millions of years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just trying to under- Basically, trying to understand how modern ecosystem evolved, and um, what what was there in the past and how it changed through time.
0: Yeah. So, and I guess climate has to be an important part of that story, even if that's not necessarily the main thing that you're thinking about, but I guess that has to be like part of the when you're trying to understand what animals have evolved where, you have to get, have some information about what was the kind of average temperature they were dealing with and precipitation and things. Does that fold into what you're looking at?
1: Yeah, I mean, not just climate, but all the sort of environmental factors from the t- um, time we're looking at are involved. I mean, and they're all kind of interlinked. So, I mean, climate is something that we look at, how warm it was, um, you know, when the ice formed, when the Antarctic Circumpolar polar current started, these sort of big major sort of environmental changes. But that's also very interlinked to um, um, continental configuration and, um, you know, um, continental drift and the movement of plates and things like, the Antarctic Circumpolar Polar Current started because Antarctica and South America separated from each other. Um, if they were still joined you wouldn't have this isolating current and a bit warm water currents would still be out to get concept the continent. Yeah. So it's all very interlinked and also what is important is the, the water depth of the units we're looking at, where the things were living. Um, as Well, what sort of substrate they were living on. I like so, that
0: idea. If I could back up a second, I mm. like that idea of the Antarctic circ- circumpolar current as a barrier, you know, as a mixing barrier. It's mm. that strong current that goes all the way across the world and and it actually, like you said, it kind of isolates Antarctica and the Southern Ocean from yeah. the rest of the planet. It firmly
1: isolates it. I mean, before, when it was still attached to South America, warm water currents could still get to Antarctica and it was much, much warmer on the continent. I mean, yeah. and until Antarctica separated from South America, there were still plants living on the Antarctic Peninsula, um, whereas now it's covered in snow and ice.
0: And the idea is that the ocean circulation played a big role in that, in modulating the climate?
1: Yeah, well, it's, um, it's the isolation on the bottom of the world without right. warm water um, and warm air being able to get to it. Yeah. So it's kind of the, the continental separation that's involved. It's... It's the isolation, and the thermal isolation, but also changing CO2 levels, which went down very slowly over time. So in the Cretaceous period, CO2 levels were much higher um, globally, and the whole world was uh, much warmer. Yeah. And there were big forests on the Antarctic, um, very much like um, South America with some beech trees and monkey puzzle trees and things like that. Um, and it's kind of like, it's all interlinked. So uh, the thermal isolation, the setup of this Antarctic second polar current, and the g- slowly decreasing CO2 levels um, has caused caused it to go, um, become covered in ice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's isolated. You said, you know, it's on the bottom of the world, which yeah. means it doesn't get a lot of annual mean kind of sunlight. You know, yeah. it's, there's long periods where it's completely dark. And... Uh, that's one of the places where you know, the planet tends to radiate energy back out to space to get rid of it. Um, and so it's a, a cooling <laughs> a cooling region. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I mean, it's um, that idea of the Southern Ocean, of the Antarctic circumpolar current as a mixing barrier. And the role of uh, eddies, you know, these kind of oceanic storms and flexing heat across that barrier has been a a subject of kind of modern oceanography. Okay, that's and, interesting. Yeah, and I know that uh, Dave Munday here, for example, is yeah. really interested in paleoclimate and interested in some of those mechanisms you were talking about. Okay. Um, uh, We didn't talk about it much on his episode. I should have him back. We should talk some more about, uh, you know, just the stuff you were talking about, of uh, you know, the configuration of Antarctica and the rest of the world. Uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. The, how that's configured you know, you either have a current that can go all the way around or you don't and that plays a big role in uh, how, like, I like the word thermally isolated, that that was good, and how thermally isolated Antarctica is from the rest of the
1: yeah. planet. Yeah. I mean, I say geologically speaking, the obviously continents, um, like continents have moved, things have changed all over the Earth over millions of years and there's had a massive effect on um, the climate because, you know, hmm. things in different places um, hmm. change the ocean currents, they change the air currents and, um, it changes how heat is distributed around around the world
0: yeah can you, and you can tell something about what that climate was like in the past from looking at the fossil records I guess and seeing what yeah. kind of you know animals were are around and plants
1: yeah we have quite a lot of ways of um, looking at how past well what past climate was like um, so you can actually look at what animals and plants were there and compare them with modern relatives and see where they they live and kind of estimate it from that Although occasionally you have to be careful because some things evolve to live in different areas over Mm -hmm. time. But we do also have other methods um, uh, for paleoclimate research. People look at um, carbon isotopes from sediments. They can tell you what past climate was, what um, CO2 levels there were, and infer what temperatures there were. We can also look at, um, so if you do a lot of paleobotany, you can look at things like... um, Stomatal indices on leaves. So leaves breathe through holes in their leaves, um, and these holes, the density of holes, is directly related to the amount of CO two in the atmosphere. Hmm. So people can look at the density of these
0: holes and infer what climate was wow. from that. Okay, um, that's fascinating. So how is that kind of how is that kind of validated? I guess you, you have to know well. You look at you modern
1: to... modern stomatal um, indices and compare them with past ones, um, hmm. assuming that obviously. Um, the density is the same for th- the same temperature regimes.
0: Because you know something about past CO two from like ice core records from getting the, you know, air trapped. Yeah, so you you, you can
1: do ice cores as well. But I'm I'm talking actually before ice cores. Okay, so before are cores. the oldest they, ice cores, like eight hundred thousand years. Yeah. I'm talking about up to hundreds of millions of years okay. old. Nice. Like this is how we talk about. Um, the past environment, the fossil environment um, it's beyond way beyond ice cores. Yeah. Um, this so, is millions and millions of years ago how so we work out the climate millions
0: and millions of years the ago. average hole size in plant leaves That's a well, the, the of density the of density. the
1: holes like yeah um, but also like leaf shape I mean leaf shape tells you a lot about climate. Um, different plants grow in different areas, and their shapes have functions like really rainy places have shapes that will uh make them water run off and stuff like that. I mean there are lots of things we can use.
0: Getting back up to the the you said the density of holes stuff so what would it look like if there's not much CO two how are the how are the plants configured for like if you com- you know, if you want to talk about it, we don't we I mean don't like I'm not know. a paleobotanist, <laughs> yeah. so
1: um I am now scraping my undergraduate <laughs> paleontology <laughs> barrel here. Um mm, let me think. Well I can't remember at- whether there's more holes when there's more CO two or less holes, but I know that I the have, density there is a density index that you yeah. can use to compare I have things and...
0: like that too where like it's to, to, something about the word more or less. Yeah. It's, if if it's something that's kind of on the edge of my you know, memory, my uh, I would sometimes need to look it up before. So yeah. that's totally fine. Yeah, I know that but, but
1: I am an invertebrate, a marine invertebrate paleontologist, I study sea animals. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Don't it's... study plants. Yeah, I looked at your webpage a little bit, the and the, the Molluscan paleontologist is your job title right it's really yeah that's kind of what i was employed
1: to do when i first came to bass many years ago but um i I would say for at least the last five years i've been more a paleobiologist i i I used to work on a lot of mollusks a lot of um snails and seashells but i mean these days i work on everything from mass extinction to crinoids so (laughs) yeah at get that changed
0: with the what, what What's a good uh, mass extinction bit that you're working on now or with uh, what, something is there something interesting you want to talk about there with the mass extinction stuff
1: um yeah so we're looking at the mass extinction event that killed off the dinosaurs mm. which happened at sixty six million years ago it 's called the Cretaceous Paleogene or kpg um, mass extinction and it 's one of the big five mass extinctions in earth history so um obviously the earth has a very long history and they found that um, There have been at least five very big events where over 70% of life on Earth has been wiped out um, at once. Yeah, so um, it's when a significant proportion of life on Earth um, has become extinct at a single horizon. And the KPG is, uh, it's not the biggest one, but it's one of the biggest ones. But one of the important things is it's the most recent one. So a lot of modern fauna evolved after this mass extinction. So it's important for us to understand... Um, what
0: effect it has? And that was the this event was caused by the uh, an impact. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah. Yes. So although the Earth was having a bad time anyway, uh, running up to this impact, and I think um, the impact kind of finished a lot of things off.
0: But oh, that, having a bad time.
1: Yeah. So there was, um there was a lot of environmental change going on, um, and in particular there was uh, a very long period of mass volcanism going on in India called the Deccan yeah. Traps, um, so a large igneous province, like loads and loads of uh, um, volcanic activity going on, lots of um, mm. gas and stuff in the atmosphere. And some people still argue that this, had, um, this was the cause of the mass extinction, but I think it's, it's been pretty much defined now that there is also a single horizon where a lot of things became extinct, and mm. this horizon around the world is defined by um, a layer with the element iridium, Found in it, and iridium is only found in outer space, so mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a bit of a, a giveaway, really.
0: That that's really interesting. So know. yeah, it's a layer. So like when you look at the strata, you know, you cut away a rock, or there, there's there an open. You can tell that I know all the terms here. I don't. <laughs> but when you look at a, a rock that's kind of cut open. You look at a profile. It has a little different strata laid down. You're saying that there's a layer, kind of all over the world, right? That has that element that has iridium in it.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah,
0: so, I mean, there's
1: a layer all around the world with a, an element from outer space Yeah, it. Space, in outer space, from space. Yeah. Um, and a lot of animals go right up to that layer and then disappear. Hmm. And um, there's also been found uh, a massive crater uh, that's um, it's in... the Gulf of Mexico, right? Yeah, it's yeah. um, Oh, in the nice Gulf, job. Yeah, in the, in the Gulf <laughs> of Mexico. Um, and It's enormous. So they found it using geophysics. Um, Mm -hmm. Half of it's kind of on land and half of it's in the sea. But um, the rocks that it hit were also important in the mass extinction. It hit a certain type of geology. Um, Gosh. That caused um, lots of sort of sulfur and stuff to go through the atmosphere. So
0: they used geophysics, like measuring local gravity and stuff? Yeah.
1: So um, obviously the crater's half on land, half on sea, and it's a very foresty place, um, and some of it's under the sea. So, geophysics um, uh, basically showed, showed where it was. that The crater comes up very clearly on using um, gravity anomalies. Um, mm. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of showed where it was. And this has been dated from the same time as this iridium layer and when everything died out. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's pretty much established kind of a now that. Smoking gun, yeah. Yeah, like a 10 kilometre <laughs> cross um, crater. Oh, is yeah. it the crater it's 10 kilometres across the comet never remember.
0: Anyway, well, that's okay. it's huge. something big hit above, the Earth. Above um, the thresholds, because lots of things, <laughs> things Yeah, that's right. so, um,
1: <laughs> but that's, that's in the Gulf of Mexico, and our research has been looking at the mass extinction horizon in Antarctica, which is a long way away. It's like one of the furthest away from the, the, the uh, impact crater. Now, we're really lucky um, because there's an island off the Antarctic Peninsula called Seymour Island, and this has one of the best exposed K-P-G mass extinction horizons uh, preserved right across the island in the world. It's got a really expanded sedimentary section, there's not time bits missing, uh, not significant time bits missing.
0: Hmm. And, um, and it still has the layers? The iridium is still Yeah. Needed? Yes, nice. okay. yes,
1: so um, some scientists found the iridium layer in 1994 hmm. um, on the island, and that's how they knew it was this horizon. And um, yeah, so we're lucky to have this really well exposed boundary from this time period, And all the rocks on the island are dipping at a gentle angle, so it enables us to walk across the five-kilometer island across about 50 million years of time, (laughs) and we can collect fossils at regular intervals through these time periods over the mass extinction horizon and (laughs) into the more recent rocks and compare all the the animals, which, which animals we find and what sort of community structure we have before and after mass extinction So
0: just the way it's eroded has, or the way that it's configured means that you can just walk from one side of the island and there's a difference in, in height so you, the fossils cross like you don't have to do like the fossils cross that horizon like you mentioned, that's really interesting well, the way it's configured
1: Rocks get laid down horizontally yeah. but then with tectonic movement they yeah. can get tilted so yeah. they get tilted at a gentle angle and then the surface gets eroded yeah. which means like this they uh, <laughs> like kind of stack up you can yeah. walk across time with that's amazing through um through these different rock units
0: you don't necessarily have to dig down i guess is the only thing i'm trying to say but no you know,
1: no you don't have to dig down at all you yeah. the um because of the tilt and the fact that it's been eroded down mm-hmm. um it means that as you walk across the surface will give you different timed rocks that's cool yeah. and um, I mean I get asked a question a lot actually at outreach events about digging through the snow and ice to get to the fossils which I <laughs> always find quite amusing No, the um, earth did
0: that for us <laughs> it just laid it right up and it yeah. it away and we're good <laughs>
1: but the reason we work on this island is because it's ice free in the summer like yeah. You, yeah we don't we don't tend to look for fossils under snow and ice it's too difficult to do that um, we look for places where the rocks are exposed and that we can find them like with nothing on top of them and um yeah, I mean, sometimes we have to, like, hammer things out of stones and things, like, out mm. of concretions. But actually on this island, I think because of, like, 3 spore action and um, the sort of environment, a lot of the fossils come out as whole specimens in a sort of loose sand. So we can actually just pick them out of well. the surface. They just sit there and we
0: can just pick them out. But almost the way you're making it so it almost sounds like the hard part is getting down there but then once you're down there oh yeah relative it's like to... fossil
1: utopia yeah and um <laughs> i mean one of the things that we're looking at is um to try and do some sort of community analysis and because these fossils are so easy to pick out and um, they're really abundant on this island as well it's amazing um it's kind of the ideal place to try and do sort of community-based studies so and mm-hmm. that's uh, kind of the future that i, I community
0: like looking at all of the animals that were yeah. that's that were so rather alive just at, the same, at the same time.
1: Looking at what animals you have, just taking, I want to take bulk collections and then look at the um, actual, try and do some sort of quantitative analysis of the community structure, so what, what um, deposit feeders you had and all this sort of thing. What's a deposit um, feeder? Uh, things, I mean you have um, deposit and suspension feeding and predators, these are all methods of feeding, um, things that take um, matter out of the sediment, um, things that um, take it out of the water column, hmm. um, like nutrients out of the water column, yeah. all this sort of thing. It's like different methods of feeding, um, and that's that's what what I want to be looking at. So yeah, um, and because of the nature of the deposit on the island um, and the degree of exposure, like how much rock is there? Because in a lot of places, rock gets covered by plants and trees and stuff like that. I mean, like actually, you don't get continuous exposure. Um, Antarctic Ross doesn't have that. It's, hmm. It's amazing, there's loads of rock, um, and it covers millions of years, so it's the ideal location. How
0: far back can you go with the fossils on that particular island?
1: Uh, On that um, particular island, you can go back um, quite near the beginning, uh, well, early Cretaceous. I mean, yes, I think there's Cretaceous is a very long period, so there's millions Mm -hmm. and millions of years preserved. And then there's some other islands um, to the west. Where um, <laughs> there's um, some even uh, older rocks, um, hmm. yeah. So you can go quite a long way through time, and then yeah, it goes to, also goes up to the Eocene, um, which finished about. I guess it's really testing my knowledge <laughs> about thirty something million years ago. Okay,
0: so is yeah. um, totally fine. I can really long yeah, time yeah, periods. Yeah, tens of millions. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, order of magnitudes. Totally yeah,
1: fine. I mean that's yeah. that's a lot for uh, one one area, one small area continuous exposure
0: yeah for sure so it's um, is it hard to get to I mean you, I guess you have to leave from the ship or do you fly there or what do you what do, you do? Um,
1: so I've only been once um, I'm trying to get back again. I'm writing grants and things at the moment yeah. to, to get back um, so we flew to Punta Arenas in Chile and then um, we flew to Rothera and then there is actually an Argentinian airbase on the top of the island and uh, oh. it's obviously got a it's got a muddy runway so we flew from Rothera to the base on top of the island. A muddy runway? Uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, not a, it's not a, like, Bass has a solid um, runway at Rothera.
0: When I think of runways, I don't think of mud. <laughs> no, it's muddy. It's, it's definitely mud- <laughs> The
1: whole island's muddy. The whole, yeah. the whole trip is muddy. But it was, yeah. I was covered in mud for weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, they have a muddy runway, um, which they lit with um, barrels of... <laughs> Fire, really? To, Just to guide us in, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we flew in on the Dutch Seven, um, yeah, and landed on their air, air base, and then um, after that, we used quad bikes and trailers to get our camp down to the field site.
0: Do you make a camp for yourself? Yeah, and...
1: yeah. We don't stay on the base because it's quite a long way away from where we're working, um, and a, it's it's a very steep um, hill it's on. So we we basically went down into the field and camped. But we did go visit them um, once every couple of weeks. Just
0: um, the folks at the at the Argentinian. Yeah, banks, yeah, yeah, we went and we went
1: for the evening and then um, had a drink and used their shower once every couple of weeks. Oh. They were very friendly. It was nice to go and see some other people.
0: Oh that shower, I bet, the, I bet those were glorious showers after yeah. days. I, I was gonna days. say I
1: still remember my first proper real shower at Rotherer after six weeks <laughs> in the field. It was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, best shower ever. <laughs>
0: It's funny, isn't it, like, how dependent we are on those things? Like, you just don't have a shower for a couple, a few weeks, and it becomes, like, super important <laughs> to you. Yeah. It's like, I must. I have to get clean. Um, yeah. I don't know how folks did it, like, you know, back in the, you know... Ten, uh, I took my son to this uh, village, this 1066-style village, that I had it set up like 1066, and they mentioned that folks around that time just wouldn't bathe in the winter they would just cover themselves in like a fat a layer oh, of fat oh god they
1: must have smelled awful Whew, oh <laughs>
0: and they'd only bathe like once a month in the summer even then so i don't know uh, i guess I, I guess they just got used to it but i don't know it's hard to imagine coping with that
1: i guess if everyone smelled as bad you don't notice probably and not. i think that's kind of like the theory when you're in the field everyone smells the same Although I did notice that you don't smell as much when you're doing Antarctic field work because it's so cold. cold, there's less bacteria. Yeah. Okay. So you don't you don't actually get hugely smelly.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, also I also use wet wipes and things just to keep clean. But the one thing we couldn't keep off everything that we had was mud. Mm. Like I was just there was mud everywhere,
0: everywhere, everywhere. Just on, yeah. On your equipment and your clothes yeah. and your yeah. computers and things. You have laptops and. Um, you
1: know. We didn't really. We have well, had one laptop, um, but. Yeah, that was it. Um, it was so. This was in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. I think people are more likely less take stuff like that now. But yeah, we just have one between the team. Hmm. But um,
0: it dries and then you can't get it off. It's yeah. drying on your clothes and stuff.
1: Yeah, we actually had to take um, Australian pyramid tents rather than the normal Bass pyramid tents because they've got an extra porch in them. Hmm. Um, so you can go into the first porch, take all your clothes off before you get into the main tent, oh, right. otherwise everything, including your bedding, will get covered in mud. Oh, yeah, okay. So, um, yeah. You
0: yeah. need a little entryway. That yeah, to basically yeah. take off all your outdoor,
1: out, <sighs> outside clothes before you go in to the in a bit, yeah. um, otherwise everything will just be covered in mud.
0: Yeah, so. and that's that feels like that would drive me crazy after a while, having oh. mud everywhere. Yeah. But it, Um, But you want to go back, right? Oh, God, I absolutely loved it. Um,
1: Yeah, I didn't want to leave. I was having so much fun. I love camping and I love outdoor activities. And I I was happy as Larry in the field. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I'm very keen to go back. Um, But mainly because I've got those questions I want to answer about... um, about this mass extinction so, oh yeah
0: for sure well, it's, it's everything right I mean you get the the science and you get the adventure of going and you get the whole it's all there you get the whole package and then you get to come back here to bass and try to write papers and things yeah and it's such a contrast
1: sitting at your desk day after day it's a bit
0: like oh oh itchy feet itchy feet it's <laughs> a so, the contrast It is a weird contrast right you go out to the massive field.
1: adventure versus quite a lot of office work
0: yeah yeah, I talked about that with uh, Pete Davis a couple episodes ago about how, for him, it's a nice contrast. He likes being able to do both, like yeah. both the office stuff and the fieldwork stuff. And do you like one more than the other, or do you do you feel similarly about like? Oh, you I kinda, definitely like the fieldwork you know, a lot. Way um, better, yeah.
1: I mean, I like I like my research. I like doing the science in the office. I like writing interesting papers, about just other sort of office based paperwork, which everyone has to do. I just yeah. find it extremely tedious. And, um, but I, I must admit I do very much like
0: the travelling venture aspect I think that's what kind of keeps me going yeah. really it's a nice it's a nice part of the job yeah a nice part of the adventure so they um, you've been at Bath uh, for, uh, for a, a good while and then where were you before Bath
1: um, uh, from the very beginning um.
0: <laughs> yeah alright we can go the other way we can like you know, well, how did I get too year? fast? Yeah yeah that, yeah, yeah, that would be a good way to go. So, where I don't know actually, where did you grow up?
1: Oh, I grew up in Kent, um, in the south of England. Um, so, I was a bit of an odd child. Um, <laughs> we, when I was six, we went on holiday to the Isle of Wight, and we found loads of fossils. Mm-hmm. And we found this enormous ammonite,
0: which is a type of coiled to it oh, yeah. The big um, coil, it has like yeah. ridge, ridges on it Yeah it. it's a coil, yeah.
1: Yeah, and we found a really, really big one, and um, I was like absolutely obsessed by it. My mum was just like, oh wow. And it was so big actually, we gave it to the Isle of Wight Museum. Um, my mum was just a bit like, oh my god, you know, if you like this so much you should become a paleontologist. Um, I think she might have been joking, but from the age of six onwards, when everyone asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I was like, oh, I want to be a paleontologist.
0: Oh, that's nice. Totally
1: want to be a paleontologist.
0: And that was your, yeah, you made a first legit discovery. You discovered something, you gave it to a museum. Yep. That yeah. It was like, you got started right away. You didn't yeah. Like, you didn't waste any time. You know? No, exactly. And
1: um, yeah, from my childhood, we used to go on holiday to Dorset a lot, and a significant portion would be spent fossil hunting. And then, I mean, I carried on through school being very interested in physical geography. And then when I was doing A-levels, they gave us the opportunity to do AS Geology. We couldn't do a whole A-level because um, we didn't have enough teachers, but we were allowed to do half an A-level in Geology. Um, and I loved it so much that I was like, yes, yes, I'm going to do it at university. Hmm. So um,
0: so just what, what do you study in like A-level Geology? I don't know, like, what what sort of things is that... So I'm saying that because my high school geology experience was not that thrilling because we all basically just talked about the different kinds of rocks and we didn't really put it in a nice context or anything. Okay. Yeah, a... I mean,
1: you also have to learn about the different types of yeah. rocks yeah.
0: Um, and there's quite a lot
1: to learn about the different types of rocks. Um, but I think one of the things that master we put into context was what we did field work. We went to Wales and looked at the rocks there and like we had to try and understand the structures that we're looking at, so the sort of folding and tectonics Mm. that's happened to the
0: rocks,
1: looks at the fossils in them, which gives us an idea of age and environment. Um,
0: That's exciting stuff when you start talking about these um, slow but very powerful forces reshaping the rock and reshaping the landscape, and there's convection going on inside the earth on very long timescales. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess, because I hadn't done geology before, a lot of it was covering this sort of basic, like, Earth uh, history, like, how things have changed over millions and millions of years. Um, and based on that, uh, I went and did a, um undergraduate master's, a four-year undergraduate master's in um, geoscience at Royal Holloway, the mm-hmm. University of London, and um, it was an amazing degree because we went on loads and loads of field trips. Um, I remember my first year, it was like most weekends, we'd go somewhere around the southern England, looking at... Individual um, sites, and at the end of the term, we had to write a project that put together the whole of the geology of the south of England using all these different sites we would looked oh, at. Nice. Um, so that sort of thing was I found really inspiring because it made you look at the landscape and understand what you were seeing, um, and I loved that. Um, and I always really particularly liked the paleontology modules that we did. Um, I found sort of the evolution of life things very very interesting. So.
0: Um, is it still? I've got, I've got something I'm curious about. Um, back when I taught some basic planetary astronomy a few years ago, uh, the understanding at the time was like that. Um, in terms of what drives the Earth's convection and stuff, that it was largely radioactivity, like radioactive decay in the core. Do you, do you happen to know? Is that still the current? <laughs> is oh that the understanding? It's or, been a long time. That's right, actually yeah. done, geology. <laughs> Um I mean, like, it kind um, of blows my mind that idea.
1: Yeah, I mean it's much warmer down there, and it's like lots of moving um, magma. Right, this is very out of my my field. I can't remember actually a lot of this stuff anymore. To my degree, like yeah. twenty
0: years ago. Oh, um, that's cool. I I just wanted to say that idea, that concept of that. Oh yeah, what drives like the movement of the tectonic plates is radioactive decay of elements in the core, and that's where yeah. a lot of the heat comes from. Yeah,
1: I mean,
0: it the... does sound yeah yeah. That's pretty cool, mm-hmm. isn't it? It is. You know, I've I've learned it. Uh, I, uh, it's just um, it's not what you would first think of if you were to make a guess as to what do you think is driving that. Yeah. And, you know, you might think it would just be kind of compression from gravity or something, but yeah, radioactive decay was when, um, Yeah. So you went to that uh, sounds like a really good degree program, a really fun. Yeah, it was great. Experience.
1: Um, yeah, and I think for people to be a good geologist, they do need to do lots of field work, and luckily this had a very good field program. Um, we covered all sorts of different areas. I mean, geology is a very wide subject. I mean, there's geochemistry and looking at minerals and mineral structure, um, paleontology, and that, that sort of covers biology and the evolution of life. Um, and then you also, we also did like planetary geology. Um, I did structural geology, looking at uh, how tectonic structures were formed, and um, that was a sort of three dimensional shape, trying to understand faulting and different hmm. rock layers and how they change in faulting. We did um, geophysics involved sort of seismic stuff and all that sort of thing. I looked at oil deposits um, and how we do a lot of petroleum geology. Um, Mm -hmm. And I did some um, igneous geology as well, looking at volcanics and the chemistry and physics of volcanoes. Um, So really, really wide, wide degree and made you understand a little bit about lots of different areas of science as well. Which I found very very cool.
0: And England and southern England has a long history of, you know, fossils and geology, and yeah. it's it's even where a lot of the terms kind of were invented. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, actually, um, the subject of geology evolved um, in sort of, I mean, a lot of Victorian scientists were British, um, and that's because England, although very small, has loads and loads of different rock outcrops of different time periods. I think almost. All by one time period are exposed in England, um, and um, well in Britain, and um, it obviously gives you a massive overview of a massive amount of time. And when people started putting together their geological maps, um, when um, it was a canal engineer that did the first, called William Smith, who made the first geological map of England. Obviously, he was digging through different rock strata, and he managed to realise that they were they tied in in some ways, and he managed to map the geology of England. Um, so it's it's a wonderful place to actually study geology. I mean, people sometimes study geology in other countries and they only have one time period to go and look at. Whereas we have every time period and such a small area. And that's why a lot of um early geologists were from from Britain.
0: Yeah, a lot of it I think happened up the road in Cambridge. You know, yes. Before, like... Yeah, they have a very long
1: history of um geological exploration. But um yeah, you're right. I mean, like there's a lot of people finding dinosaurs and things. Um well, where I grew up, um, it's in kent the Weald of kent and the sandstones that are exposed there have iguanodons um, preserved in them and there's dinosaur trackways and things so um you know even where i grew up there's dinosaurs so oh
0: that's cool grew Yeah, up
1: amongst the geology really
0: yeah that's really exciting i i don't think there's a ton of that where i grew up but there is a good bit out in colorado where i spent some time oh right yeah yeah, yeah. you can go up to like uh, red rocks uh, there's a park there and there's dinosaur ridge um and you can take trails and uh, walking trails and you know see footprints and a couple fossils dinosaur footprints and things like that that's really cool that's, yeah it's it very cool it's fun to get to see it with your with your own eyes yeah did you like going to school in london or at university there? um
1: so yeah so um Rockaway is a college of the university of london um but it's actually out in surrey near oh, windsor okay, so that, yeah. it's actually quite Quite out in well, it's not in the countryside, but it's definitely not in London. Oh, okay, it's like a fifty-minute train ride to London Oh well, yeah, Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a campus-based university. So, it was, I was very um, involved in university life, um, I was on the council for a lot of sports societies, and I competed in the university trampolining team and things like that. Um, so I was very busy with that sort of thing as well as my degree. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, so but when I went to do my masters, I was based in Central London. After that,
0: was so that with the, the a different university, or
1: yes, yeah, so um, after my four year undergraduate masters with Royal in Geoscience, I went to do a one year um, graduate masters in biology mm. um, at well, it it was with Imperial College which is in South Kensington, but we were actually based in the Natural History Museum in London.
0: Oh, that's That's amazing. Yeah, it was really amazing. That's where we had our office,
1: um, the master's office, and that's where we had all our lectures and things, and all our practicals and research work was done in different departments around the museum. Um, Although we did have a field trip to Silverwood Park, which is Imperial College's um, biological um, facility outside of London
0: um, to do some biodiversity studies. So what what was that like in terms of... I don't think most scientists have an experience of working, like, in an active museum. That's just not normally where we kind of end up, typically. So how was that different from being here? I guess it's kind of, there's this background activity always yeah, going on. Yeah, there's and a lot of members time. of
1: the public to get through to get to your office. Right, okay. Um, I found it absolutely amazing, because there's always so much stuff going on at the museum. I mean, that is always different... Um, Exhibitions and changing, changing exhibitions and talks and events going on Um, and then also what you see at the Natural History Museum on the surface is only a small fraction of all the departments and research that's going on. I mean there's a massive amount of museum you don't see as a member of the public where scientists are actually working and doing cutting edge world class research. Um, and that was pretty exciting. And as master's students, we went around to each department and, like, saw what they were doing. We sometimes got involved and, you know, helped out with some things. Um,
0: I know there's a portion of the, the Natural History Museum where you can see, like, some scientists' working spaces. Like, there's yeah, newer, the newer part. That's in the Darwin Centre. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: So um, they've made the offices sort of glass-fronted up there. Um, but the old bits of the museum, like, where the paleontology building is and where um the herbarium and stuff like that that's all very like you don't you can't see that as a member of the public and there is all sorts of interesting things behind the scenes going on um, and I absolutely loved it it was a very tough year for me though um because I was doing a master's degree in a s- subject that I didn't have a degree in oh right yeah so <laughs>
0: steep learning curve yeah.
1: it was a year where I was trying to do a master's and also catch up on a degree I didn't have right so I remember it has being an amazing year. I learnt loads, and I saw these wonderful things. But also, a year where I did so much work and was probably a little bit stressed out by trying to do this masters in yeah. you know, it's taxonomy and biodiversity, which is the naming and identifying of animals, and trying to understand um, their diversity patterns and sort of read things like species concepts and um, speciation, and looking at coevolution between different groups and things. And um, I touched on some of these in paleontology at university, but I also had to do things that I knew nothing about and I spent my undergraduate degree hitting rocks and I found myself trying to extract DNA Ooh. delicately Yeah, um, as a master student and I'm just a bit like Wow, I'm, I'm in the lab extracting DNA. This is really bizarre. I've just done a degree in rocks um, So yeah, I, it was it was a tough year in my life <laughs>
0: sounds like a good challenge though like if you're definitely you know, a challenge yeah. yes that's that's
1: that's the good word yes
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean I got through and I fast and I got really good mark but um yeah it, it was a hard year of my life
0: how did you get through it what were some of your strategies or, or was it more of a just kind of rah, push through I just worked really just really hard I mean through.
1: we had lectures all day and we had um, practicals as well and then we had research projects each week that we had to do and then I'd go home and I was commuting from South Ealing, so my commute was quite long each day. I'd go home, have a nap, and then spend two or three hours trying to catch up on biology, mm. general biology knowledge wow. um, as well. And then at the weekends, I would try and do my coursework. Yeah. Um, but, so, but, but it sounds
0: yeah. like you look back fondly on that time from hearing what you talk about it. It sounds like... It I just learned so much. It. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think um, I w- at some points, I was very concerned that I wasn't going to get through it, I guess. Like at some points, I was... I was worried that I wouldn't pass because it. at some points it seemed like an insurmountable task to get to a yeah. martyrs in a subject you don't have a degree in. When you're in um, the
0: middle of it, when you're in the thick of it and you don't know how it's going to end up, it can yeah. feel really overwhelming. So I did
1: get a bit worried at times, um, but I also look back on it and, I mean, my class was really good fun, we all got on well and working in such an amazing environment is very inspiring. I met loads of interesting people working in the museum. And I learnt so many things I didn't know anything about. I mean, I met people that do all sorts of weird things. Um, people that study wasps that live in figs, for example. I met people that, um, well, we were shown specimens of mummified cats. Um, mm. What else did we see? Um, we had a whole week of courses about the part taxonomy of animals. So this is identifying animals from bits. Oh. And it was just really bizarre and interesting (laughs) I I mean and these bits were things like a fur coat that had been bought through customs or somebody found part of a bat in a cereal box and wanted to work out whether it had come from the canning or the um the packing factory yeah Yeah. so they're like has it come from the packing factory or has it come from the house in which it was found and you can look at the species and see (laughs) see where it's um, originated from um yeah or a fur cushion that somebody has is it an endangered species Mm-hmm. Um, somebody found a bit of a mouse in a bean can, and just stuff like this. Like, um, and this is what somebody actually works on the part taxonomy of animals, mm-hmm. and uh, this kind of blew
0: my mind. I was just a bit like, I
1: can't believe somebody does this for a living. This is amazing.
0: <laughs> that may- so, yeah. If you find a bat in your cereal, yeah, call it the Natural History Museum. And they somebody will be try tr- and identify you
1: know, like- <laughs> it. But I think it's like you know, that sometimes they have like court cases where somebody says, "Oh, I found this in my my." food product and um, the factory's like no it can't have come from us so yeah. somebody has to investigate that and one of the things you can do is look at the species and where the species lives
0: that's somebody's job that's pretty cool yeah that's amazing Projects
1: yeah your animals. yeah and <laughs> a lot of it actually was to do with them um, people having fur from endangered species and things like that which you now it's good to know that people are actually working on this sort of thing like to try and stop things being smuggled in yeah
0: for sure well, what came after your master's what, what did you do after the
1: so after my masters, um, I went to the University of Leicester to do my PhD, um, and my PhD was in exceptionally preserved fossils from the Ordovician period, which is four hundred and forty million years old. Mm-hmm. So it's this uh, site in South Africa called the Tsoumashal Um and Lagerstätter is a German word for site; it means site of exceptional preservation. Okay. So. Um, this yeah, the site is really unique. It's um, it's found in the mountains, the Cedarburg Mountains in South Africa, and the fossils are really really old. And this is like pre sort of um, sort of pre fish as we know them, pre bony things. So it's pre-fish, like isn't it? like yeah. worms
0: and things. Um, worms that are starting to maybe have some fish-like. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> features very very life.
1: early fish, okay, but. Yeah. Um, Very little, Uh, so a lot of the, for the fossil record generally, hard parts are preserved. Uh, You get shells and things preserved. But at this fossil site, bizarrely, um, a lot of the hard parts are dissolved and instead you've got the insides of the animals preserved. Mm. And that's really weird for paleontology. We always, almost always, are looking at shells, like especially uh, what I do now is a lot of seashells, a lot of of snails and, and seashells. And what I was doing for my PhD was looking at the inside of animals. So actually, having just done a master's in biology, it oh, was yeah. really useful. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I got the PhD, so some of it was um, understanding the the preservation of the fossils, um, and that's kind of geology, sort of geochemistry, like, um, it's called taphonomy understanding how things um, died, rotted, and got preserved. And the other half was trying to work out, just trying to work out what the animals were, because the fossils were so bizarre. That it, it was difficult to see what the animals were like at phylum level like mm. the basic unit you know, of like is this an arthropod or is this <laughs> is this a worm like we we have these blobs and rocks basically I and mean, a lot of people describe my PhD as blobs and rocks blobs and I and, uh, didn't know what they were and my job is to work out what they were and how they got preserved
0: I just had a mental picture of that on like the cover of your of your thesis yes blobs Dr. and rocks, Little, blobs blobs on and rocks. rocks. <laughs> yeah so um Could be your book
1: my PhD was pretty unusual, um, but I was really lucky having just done my master's. I mean, part of the master's was covering every single group of animal on earth, and I'm um, learning about the key features of them. Um, so that was <laughs> ideal, in fact. So <laughs> I had a, like a basic knowledge of all sort of invertebrate animal groups, um, and I set to trying to work out what these things were.
0: Wow, how did you fit all that in your head? Because uh, that's something I definitely have to look up if I'm you know uh, i I, well, I do very very little in terms of biology and stuff, but um yeah it's I guess how much of that was just you know do do you feel like a lot of that's readily available, or do you um, in in, and yeah.
1: invertebrate sort of general invertebrate body plans i think are quite for the fossil record are quite i mean there's there's just things you need to look for, like repeated segmentation and things um I found in particular groups and things like that um but
0: is a pattern Do you get used to yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'm mean,
1: I with almost anything if you're interested in it you remember it I mean obviously there's some things I've talked about today that I can't quite remember because it's been a long time but other things I remember very clearly yeah. <laughs> um, it just depends on, on what you retain but also obviously I had to use a lot of literature a lot of books and I was using a lot of biological literature rather than paleontological literature um, because of the unusual preservation um, and I had weird animals like um, I had a whole selection of Teeth from polychete worms. Yeah. Yeah, and these are normally found like as isolated teeth, but I, I had little collections of teeth preserved as jaws.
0: Oh right, because you said the actual animal itself was preserved in these. Yeah, so itself.
1: it is sometimes and isn't at others. It's very difficult actually the preservation there. It's um it's variable. Um, so but it's unusual to get the teeth preserved as, as jaws like jaw apparatus altogether. Hmm. Why is it so different? Um. <laughs>
0: That's one of the questions that they're still looking at, actually, I
1: think. Um, I mean, the taphonomic pathways, the way that the animals got preserved there, involves definitely the sort of, I think it was an anoxic unit um, at times, so there was little little oxygen um, at some times. But I think the water must have been quite acidic when the animals were on the seafloor, so a lot of the hard parts got dissolved. But um, I think some sort of decay reaction with the actual animal tissue... Caused certain types of minerals to actually grow orthogenically out of the water columns, so or they actually replicated the soft tissue really quickly.
0: Oh, okay. So that's uh, my head was still on the last hypothesis. So you mentioned the one idea is there may not have been much oxygen, so there's not much for like bacteria to eat so and grow on. So things decay
1: um, quite quickly in oxygenated environments. Okay. Um
0: and the, is that because of the bacteria, basically, or oh, bacteria causes okay yes Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um And yeah, so there's things like that. I mean, I don't think it's fully understood. I think these things are quite complicated. But um, but something unique about the chemistry of the deposit meant that the soft tissues got replicated in clay minerals pretty quickly. Um,
0: Replicated. That's interesting. So something came in and replaced.
1: Yeah, so you can't obviously preserve soft tissue as soft tissue. So um, the the minerals basically um, grew on the surface of the animal and replicated its
0: shape for it to become mm. solid rock um, but you still get the teeth and the jaws and things like yeah that so I think um, um, we up. did
1: get teeth actually we got quite a lot of teeth of different things um, I think sort of phosphate stuff I think it also depends on the mineralogy of the original bits getting preserved um, so yeah it was complicated but, but I had um, an animal called a lobopodion which is um, an extinct group related to a group called onychophorans, which look like worms with legs they're kind of seem to be like half arthropod, half worm, Um, but they were quite common in the Cambrian era, about 500 and something million years ago, um, and at this point they hadn't been found from the Ordovician time, and we found the first Ordovician one at the time, and it, it was a soft squidgy animal with squidgy legs. So was little claws.
0: older than the previous? Uh, it was younger than younger the previous. Than,
1: okay. um, so they'd found them in the Cambrian, and I think they'd found them in... There was one in the Silurian and one in the Carboniferous, but there was a gap in the middle.
0: Okay, yeah. I, um, I don't know my periods. So. <laughs> um,
1: camels often sit down, so Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian going up through time, huh, okay. old to young. Um,
0: what was it? So it's Cambrian? That was with, my mnemonic. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, what often sits down? Camels often, camels. Sit, down camels often sit down carefully. Cambrian, Ordovician, Solarian, Devonian, Carboniferous. <laughs> and then perhaps their joints creak, so Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, well, Cretaceous. <laughs> and then you go with Cretaceous. Um, and we used to say thank you because it used to be tertiary, quaternary. But that's changed now and I haven't got a new mnemonic for that. Um, so it's now Paleogene. Oh, um Neogene paternity, But anyway, yeah, that's... Sorry, that's how I remember it when no, i yeah, yeah. talking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Makes me glad, glad I do math. I think my brain is better configured for that. People's <laughs> well, yeah, brains are very it's
1: different, aren't they? Because, like, I mean, I'm all fine with logical time and that sort of thing, but when people start throwing equations at me, I just feel like, oh, my God.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, right? Yeah, like you said, I think, I think. mean, I think people have a great capacity for learning new things but mm. there does seem to be some truth to the idea that you know your brain could be better at configured at some things than but other i think things, that's that's, you know.
1: that's true i mean people have mathematical brains clearly have very mathematical brains it's and i don't but i think um i'm sort of wide in for sort of reasoning and things like that so um i'm very good at reasoning out issues but i can't do maths very well <laughs> so but
0: it's it's a language it, like mathematics and i guess um it's abstract and symbolic and stuff and it uh I, I think it does take a long time to learn it i mean mm. you know it does take a long time to get get comfortable with it right and uh um, and i haven't yeah. had that long time i stopped doing maths after my gcsc which i took one
1: year early so i haven't done maths since i was 14
0: yeah <laughs> so what uh after your phd so that, was that a good experience oh, i loved my phd yeah?
1: so my phd was awesome um I was very happy in Leicester, it was a good, good place, um, they had a really good paleontology department, lots of people, very okay. supportive. So, like, so still
0: there? Yeah, uh, yeah. my
1: supervisors were wonderful, um, Sarah and Dick were both very encouraging, they were lovely. Um, still in touch with Sarah, Dick sadly died a few years ago, which was very sad. Um, oh, was
0: that the, uh, that just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, I, think, I went to the yeah. funeral, I, think, I, r- I remember. Yeah, I was really maybe. upset, it was yeah. very
1: sad. Um, but Sarah and I still in contact, we published a paper together last year. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Yeah, 10 years after I finished my PhD, we still occasionally do some work together. That's nice, yeah. Um, Yeah, so um, I really enjoyed my time. And I got to travel, so I didn't travel a lot when I was a kid, actually. Um, And when I was an undergraduate, it was my first sort of proper trips. I mean, I've been abroad a few times when I was a child, but not very much. Um, When I was an undergraduate, I got to go to some places in Europe and thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I did my PhD, it was my first trip outside of Europe, because I did my fieldwork in South Africa for a couple of months. And yeah, I really loved that, so... And then at the end I went to a conference in China and that's when I was a bit like, oh, really like travelling as well as the science.
0: Yeah, the whole lifestyle of it. The... Yeah, hmm.
1: the sort of like getting to explore other places and doing field work and things. So obviously a job at Bass was advertised as I was writing up my PhD. Okay. Yep. And then I decided that this sounded like a good adventure. <laughs> so I applied for it and I got it. So. <laughs> oh, that's,
0: that's amazing. Yeah, that's, it's great had some stability, and you've been able to stay here, and it's, it's really good, yeah.
1: Yes, yes, yeah, so I've been here for uh, 10 years now, which is a long time.
0: <laughs> oh, that's nice. And you spent some time, was it the Smithsonian you spent some time in recently?
1: Um, I have worked at the Smithsonian for a week, but um, I recently worked at the uh, American Museum of Natural History for a few weeks okay, yeah. in New York, which
0: was pretty cool, so, <laughs> yeah?
1: yeah, I do like museum environments, um, visiting museums and things, um, there's always really so much interesting research going on. And I met those people working on the mass extinction, the K-P-G mass extinction in America. Um, and that was really interesting to see what they're doing with all their data. Um, and I gave the seminar to them um, to show them what I was doing with my data. And, it, yeah, we had conversations about about what we're all doing.
0: I imagine it's like my field where, you know, there, there's a pretty common just academic culture and it doesn't matter too much where you are. You know, there's, Yeah, there's people that similar, you know,
1: like people who study things that tend to be similar around the world he always has something to talk to people about um and yeah they were a great group it was really good to good to meet them
0: yeah that's good and um i just got tired all of a sudden i don't know why (laughs) (laughs) um that's good How, how do you feel is there anything else you want to talk about or um anything else you want to dig into a little bit uh, <laughs> you mentioned the cycling I liked, thing
1: I liked the, <laughs> the digging oh, as was, a playing soldier I tool just. should um, take credit for that but yeah.
0: I'll be honest it was unintentional I didn't uh. mean to do that but I should have taken credit for it <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so the you mentioned cycling you know um, you like to go on long cycling in fact your earrings are cycles. They are, uh, you know, they are huh? actually, cycles, yeah. I made them. <laughs> oh, cool, you made I, I assembled them,
1: yes, yeah, no, I, I make jewellery sometimes, yeah. Oh, okay.
0: Um, so you assembled it, so you made the... I didn't
1: actually make the bicycle, I just put them together. Um, I buy bits and put them together. Oh,
0: okay, so yeah. you found a little metal bit of... Yeah, yeah,
1: you can buy them on the internet. <laughs> oh, okay, cool.
0: And so, you yeah. you assemble the rest of it that goes into your yeah, gear yeah, and yeah. the...
1: Yeah, yeah, Just pliers, put them together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was that like? That was that was long wasn't it cycling yeah you did oh, like sorry. a long cycle um, <laughs> trip no yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah cool. it took yeah. me
1: a really long time to make those uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry uh, I've done I've done a few cycle trips um, I mean I, I mean I've done some cycles around France and um, one around Switzerland where we went from Basel to Bern to Zurich and back to Basel um, and it's just with a group of friends um, it's an excuse for us to do lots of exercise and eat lots of food hmm. we do like sort of sort of between 60 and 80 miles a day and um, go between new and things um, and that's really good fun and then a few years ago I sighted across the interior of Iceland
0: oh, wow. with oh. some
1: ladies from Bass um, mm. on, a, on a expedition that's great fun mm. um, so yeah there's uh, four of us and we wild camped and we went right across the interior um, and it's a bit like moon on the interior of Iceland. It's oh, I like seen volcanic that one. landscape. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I absolutely
0: loved it. It was really, really H- cool. Hot springs and
1: Yeah, so in yeah. the centre where we went through the middle, there was a, a campsite with a hot spring, like a wild hot spring, which is an <laughs> amazing thing to be sitting in because there was these big glaciers in the distance. And then we went and cycled between these two massive glaciers. Um, and then we got to the south. So we went from the north to the south across Iceland. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. That was so much fun. So yeah. you're in
0: a warm pool. It's it was was it cold out? What time of year was it?
1: Um, where you went in the middle of the summer because okay, yeah. the roads across the interior um, the gravel tracks across the interior only open in the summer hmm. in the winter they're of nice obviously and snow yeah. in fact the, the the track only opened when we were halfway across the um, island so we started cycling before it actually opened oh. <laughs> um,
0: just crossing your fingers like yeah, yeah we were
1: hoping it would be clear yeah, yeah. I mean because they have like these big sort of tracked vehicles that go across with people in the summer um, and um, we figured that we'd probably be able to get through on bicycles even if the road was shut mm-hmm. um, but it, actually the, the bit that was shut opened the day we got to it so we were really lucky anyway, we did have to cross a few streams um, at the points going across the road so <laughs> I mean that's one of the reasons why it's shut is if there's snow or wa- water across the roads
0: mm, yeah.
1: but yeah, good adventure
0: I, thought, oh, yeah, I, I remembered uh, something that I did want to ask you about because I, I don't have a great sense for like what what's your day to day kind of work look like, you know what I'm not, maybe you have a typical day, maybe you don't, but if you had to pick, like, uh, what, what are some of the activities you're doing on any, any particular day? Like,
1: yeah, I wouldn't say I had a typical day, yeah. um, but, I mean, things I do when I'm at work. Um, so, if I'm looking at a new collection of fossils for a study, I will normally have to start by identifying them. Um, so, a couple of my latest studies involved looking at and identifying 6,000 fossils to get the data to actually do the research Hmm. so sometimes the start of a project actually involves a really long time in the um, lab actually working out what animals I have and once you've got your list of the animals and then you can put them into spreadsheets and start looking at what the numbers of things and the species ranges like where things are living in time and um, trying to work out how they live so that's like manipulating data. And then I use sort of computer packages um such as Primer and R and these help you do yeah. um things like cluster analysis and yeah. I like R. R's pretty good. Yeah. MDS um stuff like that to look at um patterns in the data.
0: Yeah. R has some nice intuitive, you know, he's like, give me all the ones that have, I don't know, that have this index associated with them, you know, or that I have decided are, you know, in the red category or something. Yeah. It's really good at doing statistics in a simple way. Yeah, I only started it, using yeah.
1: it recently. Um, I mean, so coding's not something that I've done a lot of. Um, I secretly find it quite satisfying. Like, when you get it right and you press a button, it does something wonderful. I'm just like, oh, wow, look at that. Look what I've done. This is amazing. <laughs> it <laughs> um, works. But I also use Primer a lot, which does a lot of um, statistics, and it's set up as an ecological statistics program, um, which is designed for, like, communities of animals. And, um that's really, really easy to use um you don't need to know any sort of coding or anything. It's a very user friendly package actually um and I really like that as well um for things yeah. um and yeah, this gives me like this gives me my data um and the interpretations I can use um from that, and then I'll be looking at writing papers. That normally involves, I mean, like, because fossils have a really long evolutionary history and there's been a lot, lot of research. Um, Like, if I'm identifying a new species, for example, I have to make sure it hasn't been described before, so I'll have to look at every single description of that species mm-hmm. that has been, or that group, oh, every yeah. single species description that has been done before. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of literature chasing um, when identifying new species. And I've ended up looking at things um, from Darwin's voyages um, mm-hmm. that have been described in South America to check that for the same species as one I'm looking at. Like, oh I yeah, mean, ended up in the rare rare books room in the university, looking at things from seventeen eighty in Spanish mm. to make sure that it's not a species that has been described before. So there can be quite a lot of um, paperwork involved in some of my uh, sort of search.
0: Yeah, that sounds. How would you know if it has never been described? You, you can you can check, I guess, other records. Yeah. but... You, 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 there's always a chance, I guess, somebody could have described it somewhere that you just don't have access I mean,
1: to. Most, I mean, it's, it's actually got easier recently. I've sometimes make me sound really old, but in previous times, not so much as being on the internet, but more late lately, a lot of people have digitized a lot of collections. Um, so you, you do spend a lot of time Googling t- certain things and seeing if they've been described. A lot of literature is online now, hmm. but sometimes you do have to. You find references to things that you have to go and look up in the library, which are super old. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess it it can be very time consuming, but you know you, you have to make sure it hasn't been described before because um, there's rules of zoological nomenclature about naming animals, and you can't give something a new species name if it's already been described. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter yeah. how long ago it was described. You can't describe the same thing twice.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. How do you approach writing? If like, what's your? Do you have a? Do you, is it something you enjoy, or is it? I've talked to a lot of folks on here, and you know some folks kind of like it and some folks really hate it. There's a big spread of feeling about you know, scientific writing even, yeah, even folks who do it professionally you know
1: I do quite enjoy it. I think for me i a lot of my research involves me having to do an awful lot of reading before I do it and of old papers and new papers um, so it will start with loads and loads of literature m- literature work, and then when I actually do the writing i can I can really enjoy it. I think if it's going well, I really enjoy it. If it's going slowly, I find it very frustrating. Hmm. But on my best days, I'll put on some terrible, terrible pop music and I'll be off on a, like, oh, yeah, this is great, this is great. Because um, I find listening to terrible pop music, because it doesn't engage my brain in any way, but uh, yeah. gets rid of my conscious thoughts. Like, that's a really good thing to listen to when I'm writing, so... Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, nice. I, I, I hate to admit to what I listen to when I'm writing, but it's terrible. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then I'll just get going. And when it's in that phase, when it's really flowing like that, I absolutely love it. I'm just like, oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> brown noise helps me a lot with that. Just like a... Sh- yeah. Brown noise. I oh, see, to
1: that's what noise makes it. me really stressed out. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, that's but something like Taylor Swift <laughs> involves absolutely no thought. Um, and, you know, it's got very little chords. It <laughs> it doesn't, it's not complicated music. It just kind of, like... I don't know, blocks of my mind. I, not that I'm a fan, but, like, you know, that's the sort of level of the things I listen to yeah. and I'm
0: writing. It works for you, yeah, you found something that works.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I also found there was a site that simulates the sound of being in a coffee shop. <laughs> if Gosh. You want, if you want the sound, like, ambient sounds of...
1: That's really good. <laughs> you
0: know, dish, dishes clattering yeah. and,
1: like... I really don't like you know. that sort of white noise, no, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, for me, it's just, like, you know, four-chord four yeah. pop music, really basic pop music can
0: um, help don't know
1: why
0: i haven't tried that i've tried other music but uh I, maybe the mistake i've made is uh, listening to music that i really like and so i kind See, of yeah i can't do that i'll end no. up singing so yeah or i end up just kind of stopping and like oh listen this to this is, yeah yeah and i mean, if i listen <laughs> to like you know
1: really good good music and then like <laughs> yeah i am i'm listening to the music and i'm singing along and i'm like this is great and i'm like i'm not actually working yeah so if i listen to really trashy pop music for some reason that helps me just shut off my part of my brain that gets distracted
0: i'm picturing a montage of you working you know like with taylor swift or something playing the in the Tuiga, background of like, uh, you know Hanson,
1: um, all these classics aha take on me it's a yeah. good writing tune like yeah all the sort of thing <laughs>
0: yeah it's montage music that oh yes in yes the very very good book like... yeah i have a tiger yeah i like that yeah montage music yes definitely <laughs> yeah um, she's getting stuff done yeah <laughs> she's knocking it out yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, something else I do at Bass, actually, a lot of, of what I do at Bass, involves doing a lot of talking to people, like outreach activities, um, do schools talks, and I go to fossil festivals. So uh, Lone
0: Regis Fossil Festival, right? Yeah, yeah, we do that
1: every year. I've done that many times now. Um, I give public lectures, I've done some university lectures, some school teaching, um, I've been on television a couple of times. Yeah,
0: you enjoy that? It's good.
1: Yeah, Thank I do. You, but... I, I enjoy doing the outreach stuff. I mean... I think I'm really lucky because the combination of fossils in Antarctica, especially looking at the time when dinosaurs became extinct, is a, a unique combination that people find very interesting. Mm. So um, people want to hear about it. Um, so, yeah, we end up at the Fossil Festival and I end up doing, so, as yeah, I I've been on a couple of TV programmes. Um, I end up yeah, doing a lot of outreach for bass, um, which I, I enjoy. I think it's good for me to get out of the office and talking to other people, mm. talking yeah. to the public.
0: Yeah, for sure. So well, you also do the singing bit right here in the I'm in a choir group.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well I mean it's a community choir. It's um it's not a serious choir, you don't have to right. audition or anything. You right. don't need to be able to read music although I can. Um and it's it's for fun and everyone's really, really nice. It's kinda of like my break from science actually. Yeah. Um and uh we've got loads of different people in our class. So we've got some scientists, we've got school teachers, people work in the community, people work in charities. It's just nice to do things with other people.
0: It's probably important, right? Like, I think, um, especially if you move around a lot, there's a tendency to have all of your friends are also work friends. Yes. It's, um, it's good to have work friends, but... It's good
1: to have people uh, that you don't work with and you don't have yeah. to talk about... I mean, so a lot of my friends in Cambridge are bass people or paleontologists and yeah it's nice to go and work with people that uh, go and do things with people that aren't scientists. I mean you have different interests there's like people that really like arts and poetry and theater and stuff like that. so
0: I think I find with those folks those kind of friends outside of uh you know your workplace if you if you you might find yourself you know grumbling a little bit at some of the usual kind of workplace grumbles that happen everywhere on the planet yeah. right. And uh, as you describe them, they start to sound like, oh, actually, that's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually like, whereas if you're talking to another bass person, you might. It gets you know, magnified, doesn't it? Could it? be right because yeah. they they know what you're feeling and they're like, oh yeah, that's frustrating. And again, I'm just talking about normal, everyday kind of you know yeah. usual workplace frustration stuff. But uh, yeah, if you talk to somebody outside, you can get some perspective on it. It's like, well, okay, maybe it's not that it's bad. Not it's not been such system. a bad
1: day after all. Yeah, one of my friends is a pediatrician, Adam Brooks. Oh, when right. I think I've had a bad day, sometimes I'll talk to her <laughs> and I'll be a bit like, okay, my day wasn't so bad, was it? Like I haven't had to deal with. It incredibly sick children which is just tragic so like you know a bad day for us is very different from a bad day for other people
0: my model crashed (laughs)
1: yeah and then she was like yeah well uh." (laughs) so yeah it could could be a lot worse yeah but yeah I really like my choir everyone's really friendly Um, we do a lot of community activities as well I mean like we we sing at the old people's home and we raise money for charity and do carol singing and things like that so um, yeah it's fun it takes us out in the community doing
0: things nice sounds all right yeah sounds good how are you feeling Is, all right yeah, yeah. good yeah. anything else you want to cover talk about
1: no no i think i'm good i'm good
0: nice well thanks for doing this yeah this Sorry. was a lot of fun thanks for having me <laughs> yeah great cool okay i'll just click and there you have it my conversation with dr rowan whittle paleontologist at the British Antarctic Survey. Like I mentioned you can look Rowan Up online at the British Antarctic Survey website to see her publications and what she's been involved with. Uh, She does a lot of public outreach uh, like she mentioned. You can find some YouTube videos. Uh, She also participates in the Lyme Regis uh, Fossil Festival every year typically so that might be a place where you could uh, meet her and interact with her. I'm sure she'd also be open to you just emailing her if you had something that you wanted to talk about you know a good science question um i think most scientists are reasonably open to that you know we don't get a ton of email from just out in the world so if you've got a good question or something you're curious about feel free to email one of us and uh if we don't know then uh we can usually find you the right person who would know the answer to your question and if you don't get a response uh keep trying don't give up because uh Well, obviously a lot of scientists just are too busy um, for their own good, uh, myself included. So be persistent and keep sending emails. Don't give up if you don't get a response right away. Thanks for listening. I Hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you later. Um, We're on a roughly two-week schedule still. So see you next time. Bye.